What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Chris Zaru is an entrepreneur and investor. He's the mastermind behind the legendary rise of artist Logic, along with a host of other incredibly talented individuals. In this conversation, we discuss the creator world, how to build an audience, intersection of entertainment and tech, fans versus listeners, music distribution, talent in startups, playing not to lose, and of course, Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation with Chris, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Near. Near is an open source platform that accelerates the development of decentralized applications, overcoming high fees and slow speeds with its fast, scalable, low cost and climate neutral blockchain protocol. This is why Near was recently awarded the climate neutral product label from South Pole. One transaction on Near consumes about 1300x less carbon than a similar transaction on other chains. Learn why Near is the infrastructure for innovation at near.org today. N-E-A-R dot O-R-G today, near.org. Go check it out. Next up are my friends over at Exodus. Exodus is leading the world out of the traditional financial system by building beautiful and user-friendly blockchain products. With its focus on design and user experience, Exodus has become one of the most popular and loved cryptocurrency apps. It's supported on both desktop and mobile, allowing you to sync your wallet across multiple devices so you can have access to your funds anywhere. You can instantly exchange around 100 different cryptocurrencies straight from your wallet. Interactive charts let you view an asset's price history and your portfolio's performance over time. And maybe the best part, Exodus is integrated with the Treasure Hardware Wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Visit exodus.com slash pomp for your free download or search Exodus on the App Store or the Play Store. Again, exodus.com slash pomp for your free download or search Exodus on the App Store or the Play Store. Last but not least is Crypto.com. With 10 million plus users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell 100 plus cryptocurrencies. The Crypto.com Visa card gives you up to 8% back instantly and 100% back on Spotify and Netflix. Also, Crypto.com lets you earn very high rates of interest on Bitcoin and stablecoins. Get $25 when you download the Crypto.com app with code POMP. Again, download the Crypto.com app, use code POMP, and you get $25 for free. Download the app today by clicking on the link in the description, Crypto.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Chris. I hope you enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Chris here with me. Thanks for doing this, man. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. All right. You've got one of the craziest stories that I know. Uh, and there's a lot of similarities, I think, between what you started doing and what you're doing now in investing. Um, but on the surface, most people wouldn't understand that. Uh, let's just start from like the very beginning. You are how old before you start a talent management business? 20. 20 All right. years old. And at 20... You're trying to figure out like what you want to do or you always knew you wanted to go in the talent manager's No, I really had no idea. Stumbled into it. I was on the path to become an athlete, tried mm-hmm. to become a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. I was a division one soccer player. Learned really quickly that wasn't going to work out. After my sophomore season, kind of cold turkey dropped it and was like, okay, what's next, right? You go through that soul searching. For me, it was like, okay, what am I passionate about outside of this sport? It was music was the answer for me. And okay, how do I get involved with music? Landed on talent management, I would go to Barnes & Noble, kind of just read music business Mm -hmm. books to learn about it. I landed on talent management because I was like, okay, there's no barrier to entry here. If I can find talent and break that talent, that's my foot in the door. Mm -hmm. So literally just stumbled into it. All right. And so when you start understanding that, uh, was there things you learned by reading like the talent management books or the like business books that you were like, okay, here's like the two or three things I got to do this. Or was it literally just like, just find the right person? It was more, for me, it was more about finding the right person. And looking back now, if I had tried to educate myself on that current music business back in 2010, Mm -hmm. 2011, I think I would have been brainwashed, right? Mm -hmm. I think a a piece of my success was not having the experience. So I got to, I understood the internet and I Mm -hmm. understood, okay, 
where audience was, where attention was, and I knew how to put my artist in front of them. Mm -hmm. That was kind of how we broke through. And it was also a really unique time in the music business. The recorded piece of music was kind of dying. These labels were having a really rough time mm -hmm. because that was the era where everybody was pirating music, right? Mm -hmm. And it allowed me, and it really, because I understood the internet's where I lived, that's how I found talent. There was this these music blogs, right? It was this, we call it the blog era. It was a huge uh, piece of the music business. People my age, I kind of came up with it. Is this like Dat Piff and like a bunch of those sites? That's a great example, right? yeah. but it was more like college kids curated blogs, right? Got it. Okay. Where they'd identify talent, find talent, and post the talent. And you mm -hmm. would just go to discover up and coming talent. Mm -hmm. That's where I found my artist. And I had a relationship with these kids. That's how I marketed them. It was it was that simple. And executives didn't understand it. Experienced managers didn't understand it. Yeah. And so when you say they didn't understand it, they didn't know it existed? They didn't know it existed. I was getting calls in the early days of managing Logic from executives that I had started building a relationship with. And I'd have a video and it'd have 500,000 views after 48 hours. They're like, yo, how are you doing this? Mm -hmm. They were dumbfounded. Mm -hmm. And what were you doing? I was using those websites. It was just relationships, right? It was that because people were checking those websites. And then again, word of mouth kicked in. Mm -hmm. This was the internet wasn't as noisy then. And I think that was a really special time. Mm -hmm. So if you discovered logic, right, mm -hmm. you'd want to go deeper. Mm -hmm. You went through his entire discography, right? You told your friends about it. It's also the aux cord era where everybody was sharing music, whether you're at a pregame, you're driving your car. And I just noticed word of mouth. It spread so quickly. Mm -hmm. Talk me through when you first found Logic. Is that the first artist that you found? Yeah. Or, or, or is that just the first major artist? That The second artist I ever worked with. There's a okay. rapper out of Philly prior to that, but it was the first success I ever had. Came across him on the internet. Um, really didn't have much music out. It was like an acapella video of him rapping on the University of Maryland campus. He lived in Maryland at the time. And I kind of cold reached out to him on Facebook. And I was like, hey. Just Facebook message, slide right in the DMs. Like, what's up, man? He didn't even have an artist page. I had to find like his personal Facebook. That's how early it was. Yep. Reached out to him and was like, hey, you know, I think you're talented. I'd love to manage you. And Logic's Did, a funny did he guy. know what that was? He did. But he called me and he was like, you don't have any experience. And I was like, <laughs> I know that. Give me a shot. Like, just trust mm -hmm. me. That's kind of the agreement that we had. I was like, don't worry about paperwork. Just give me a shot. And, mm -hmm. and it you know, fortunately worked out. So you see him, uh, was there anything that you were like, like this guy's a star in the making? Was it sure. lyrics? Was it just like kind of like stage presence, if you will? Or was it just literally intuition? Like, I don't know, I can't explain it, but like this guy's real. It was more intuition from, I think me being such a fan of hip hop. Mm. I was like, okay, this kid is a student of the game, right? This mm. kid has worked at his craft. That That's what stood out to me. You so, could tell that by watching. Right away. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then obviously got to know him more and more and hear more music. I'm like, okay, that was very true. Um, so that kind of was what drew me to him. And once you guys decide like, all right, let's work together. This is 2011. -ish. 2011. Okay. So in 2011, uh, social media is not huge, right? right. Like, like very, very different world as you've already described. What do you do? Because you basically take a kid that you find in Maryland who nobody knows. Sure. And it becomes logic, right? And for all intents and purposes, that's like a zero to one type event uh, that doesn't happen overnight. No. Like what are the steps kind of from an execution standpoint you guys did to take logic's talent and actually make it this household name? Sure. It, knowing what I understood, and I think, like I said a couple minutes ago, I understood the internet and I understood where attention was, right? And had the relationship with all these blogs. Mm -hmm. And again, at the time, you couldn't even really get behind the scene analytics. So I would just, again, it was all intuition. I was like, okay, I would reverse engineer other artists breaking. Okay, okay, YouTube seems to be uh, uh, playing a big role in this artist's career. So I would sit Logic down and be like, hey, we need to shoot a, a music video for almost every song on this project, right? Because that that's really how we're gonna market you. And we'd roll it out slowly as kind of singles, but there'd mm -hmm. be five or six off a mixtape. Cause YouTube was, that was really the only music streaming platform if you think about it, mm -hmm. right? This is pre-Spotify, pre-Apple Music. So it's a way for kids to easily share music. When you post on your Facebook at the time, it would clean embedded in, in Facebook. So you could watch it across your newsfeed. Twitter did the same thing at the time. So we shot a video for every single single that we handpicked um, and it was low budget. Like I, we would, I would bargain with directors. There's one director we work with, his name was Gravity. I was like, hey, I'll let, let you put your logo at the beginning of the video because we don't have a budget to pay you. And that was the trade-off. Um, and so that was equal because that person's betting my work plus Logic's talent is going to be a viral video, and right? And we started getting you know some great views at the time. So it was worth it to him at the point. Mm -hmm. And we ended up growing and building with that kid for a couple of years. Um, so it was just figuring it out and, and 
think you know again intuition where i thought talent was going to be mm-hmm. putting logic there and then word of mouth just did its thing mm-hmm. and started to take off okay so word of mouth kind of did its thing right we've talked quite a bit about how you kind of uh methodically built a really really rabid fan base and sure. uh for those that aren't familiar with logic's fan base there's like I don't know, uh, the Drakes and the Jay-Z's and like these massive, massive names. And yes, they have some subset that care a lot, but on a percentage basis, majority of their audience is more of a passive kind of listener, Sure, right? It's, hey, I like Jay-Z's music, but if Jay-Z comes to town, I'm not literally going to not go to my brother's birthday party to go, right? Right. Logic actually has a very high percentage of his audience that literally will do anything that he is doing or yes. into or whatever because it's almost like a, a measurement of engagement, Correct. right? It's not passive. It's much more kind of uh, intentional. So one of the things you told me before is you guys would go on these city-by-city city tours, and it sounds like it would start out really, really small, and then you basically would just like, okay, next time we come, like increase it, like walk through, like why did you go on the city tours and like how did you actually execute that? Yeah, the quick answer was a way to monetize his audience because at the time we were giving away free music. So we weren't making any money off of it. And I think back to your prior question, it didn't happen overnight. It was what we focused on, him and I talked about it every day. We, we'd say small wins. So mm-hmm. that's what kind of got me up in the morning. I was like, okay, let's get a small win today, right? Mm-hmm. Because I started to see it day by day, it was compounding. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of really happening, right? So you wouldn't have this major viral moment, but every single day I'd refresh the video and have more views. I'd look at the streams, it'd be more streams. I'd look at his social followers, it'd be more. And then I realized it started compounding at at a higher growth rate as time went on. And then I was like, okay, I think it was all intuition based. We didn't have data. Like I said, the way you get like Spotify has a backend that is just fucking incredible. It gives you so much information where the listeners are coming from, the age of that listener. So you know your entire audience demographic, right? You know where they are, where they're consuming your music. We had no clue. So it was an intuition thing where I'm like, I remember calling him. I'm like, I think we could probably tour, right? Mm-hmm. And again, learning as we went, throwing a tour together. I think we did 35 cities on that first run. Um, rented a minivan and Nissan Altima and jammed them and, and toured the country, man. What does that mean when you go on a tour? Like, like, do you go to a park? Do you go to like a bar? Like we were doing, we were doing probably 250 to 350 cat rooms. So very small rooms, right? Mm-hmm. We had no tour history and it was all of us working with promoters and we had an agent that we worked with at the time. Nobody would give us guarantees. So the way touring business works is you'll get a flat guarantee. Mm-hmm. If you do really well, you'll get back end, right? Because Logic had no tour history, nobody wanted to give us a guarantee. So that, like a guarantee would be like, hey, come here and play. We'll pay you, you know, $10,000 to play. And then, oh, by the way, if you hit some metric, then we'll cut you another check for ten k, So you can make up to $20,000 for playing tonight. But 10 is upfront guaranteed. Correct. The other 10 is you got you to pull in the audience. Exactly that. So we embarked on this tour again no guarantee so like it didn't work out we lost we lost literally everything so to backtrack a little bit the way we had the startup capital so we bootstrapped the business my management company never raised money we had to sign a record deal in order to fund that first tour mm-hmm. right so we literally raised like i was like hey logic i'll put my advance in he put me, me and him split the money we went on tour and it just worked out and it was figuring it out as we went I had never toured before, obviously, mm-hmm. and and you know even the accounting was just like I look back at it, I'm embarrassed now. But tell I was a them kid. the cash story. The oh, cash man. story is so good. So <laughs> again, being a door deal, you'd settle the end of the night in cash, depending how the, the tour did, and we crushed. We ended up. All selling. right, so hold on. It was just so people understand, a door deal basically means no guarantee. People are coming in. You'll the, get 85, 90 percent of every ticket sold. Okay, so when people show up, they're literally paying cash. They're getting a ticket. They're walking inside, but that cash that they just paid is ultimately supposed to end up in your pocket 80, 85%, 90%, whatever. But it's sitting in cash, which, you know, depending on who's at the door, depending on what the the, uh, venue is, gets kind of sketchy if all of a sudden cash starts disappearing or whatever. So my accounting system at the time, right, before we went on the tour, I I had manila envelopes. I'm like, all right, 35 cities. Denver, Colorado, I'd write on huge, right? And I'd have it in a backpack. And I was like, the end of the night, I'm going to settle. And I'm going to literally, it was like a ledger. And I would write everything. So if somebody needed $20 for weed, minus 20 for weed, right? (laughs) And we finished the entire tour. When I say I look back, I'm embarrassed. It was in that one backpack, right? We'd be in a green room. I'd put it down in the corner. And we'd all leave the room. It's sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars, and it's just cash. Yeah, backpack. and literally all of the expenses of Logic's tour is written on Manila envelopes, everything. just in a backpack together. E- everything, <laughs> and then post tour, right? We're at my house. I was working with Harrison Remler, who you know now, um, who's the CEO of my company at the time, was an intern. 
he ended up tour managing for me on that tour. I left, I did the first 10 shows, mm -hmm. kind of showed him the ropes. So we're literally in my parents' basement at the time where we built the business out of, and we're trying to then input everything into like an Excel spreadsheet and have it neat, because we had to bring the cash into the bank. Right? Yeah, 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 and they want to know where the hell did you guys get this cash so, and you're pulling out of a backpack. <laughs> so, so we literally, we're sitting there, we're taking out the cash, we're putting the cash on top of the envelopes, right? I was working in full time. So it was all it was all laid out on the floor. So you'd have Denver and it'd be cash on top of it. You have New York City cash on top of it. I was going to work. So I was in college working full time and managing logic at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, hire, finish up here. You got it. I'll jump out. I leave, I come back. Okay. He tried to clean up, took all the envelopes, ripped them up, threw them out. I get back. There's just 35 piles of cash. Oh, so we had no man. idea. So we had no idea. No idea what, what went you do? Where. Just put it all in the bank and just said, "Hey, we're gonna. I'll take my commission. You get the rest." And that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. dude. Like it wasn't glamorous back then. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of people think like, "Oh, it's entertainment. It's music business." No, I mean, it was like really hard work, like just grit and and like the tour. You're jammed body to body in the bed. Like I rode that minivan like this. Yep. And when we got back to New York, so we ended the tour in New York, and we did everything like it wasn't by the book. I the the rentals were in my name, mm -hmm. so I rented them from Long Island. And we, rentals, uh, the cars, the minivan and the Ultima, okay, yep. toured the country, went to California and came back. And I was doing the paperwork and it's like, you can't leave New York state. <laughs> we literally drove across the country and came back. I was like, well, I'm going to return them in New York. So who's going to know? <laughs> Meanwhile, they're taking photos of our license plate, every easy pass and every, yep. it was, uh, yeah. It was, so when you do that, how much of the success of this first tour is because you guys didn't do what everyone else did versus no, if we had done what everyone else did, we would have been way more successful. No, I think it wasn't the tour. If we had done what everyone else had done, I don't think we would have got Logic's career off the ground. Okay, right? explain it was, that. It was doing things our way that was kind of a little bit different. And that's why I was getting calls from executives going, yo, how are you doing this? How are you building this audience? It was just solely living on the internet. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of times I say Logic is kind of a child of the internet. We built his entire career on the internet by giving away free product, mm -hmm. which again, record executives and labels looked at me like we were nuts. Mm -hmm. It's like the one thing that you can monetize, you're giving away for free. Mm -hmm. And I would get frustrated because I'm like, you don't understand, I'm building an engaged audience. Mm -hmm. They're creating emotional connection with this artist. They're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. When it's time to monetize, we'll monetize, right? How important is it, uh, building an audience on the internet's one thing, right? You mm -hmm. can go, you can tweet, post on YouTube, whatever, uh, versus actually going and seeing your 200 fans in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, right? And being able to either have them see you and, and, and kind of be there in person or even signing things or taking photos with them or like doing that type of in-person, right? Like, like, is that actually a really key ingredient here versus just, oh yeah, we were on the internet, we were good at the internet, but like we could have done it without that in-person stuff. That's a great question. I think back then it was so important. We were kind of in the dark on exactly whose audience was because mm -hmm. we didn't have the data that mm -hmm. you can get now, right? We didn't know kind of the, the age demo. We didn't know, you know. So that first tour was everything for me. I would go and generally be a balconier. I would just stare at these fans and I'd go, okay, this is who his audience is. Mm -hmm. Now let me try and go where they're going to be or where I think they're going to be and continue to market him. So that's kind of how we developed everything from the beginning. But now you can build anything on the internet and you have that information, right? Yeah. So you shouldn't be surprised when you do sell a show out to see who's there. But back then it was like, I had to learn who was gonna be there. Yeah, when you think about um, the idea of like, okay, I now understand who the actual demographic is, right? I'm assuming that it was like, hey, who's your demographic? I don't know, young, yeah. right? Like, or, or college yeah, or, or yeah. whatever it was. Uh, but once you start to understand, all right, this is actually who these people are, what do you do to like go figure out what else they like or go and put him somewhere else, right? Because he doesn't have enough star power at this time, it sounds like, to like walk in and do deals and, and do no. all this kind of crazy stuff. It's still a lot of like guerrilla marketing, but it's not just around music. It's really kind of building this like cultural uh, kind of trend around an individual. Very much so. I think you had to try and really understand who that audience was, who else they'd listened to, what they consumed. Um, you know, even lifestyle brands. We did a deal early on with Fila, right? Which mm -hmm. was kind of an old, you know, sports brand that was trying to, you know, have a resurgence. And it made a lot of sense for Logic's brand at the time. He's not a high-end street fashion dude, right? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have made sense back then to do a deal with Supreme, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was funny as we started to see it, these kids also kind of live vicariously through him. Mm -hmm. So in one of the tours when we did that deal, 
I started seeing kids show up in Fila gear every day, mm. right? So it was kind of cool. And I realized, okay, this is more than just kind of a fan base. This is kind of like, it's a lifestyle type thing mm -hmm. for him. But yeah, I think understanding who your audience is the most important thing you can do and then tripling and doubling down on over delivering to that audience. And a lot of people can say they did that. We live that. I think Logic in as an artist probably has some of the best examples of doing that. His sophomore album, it was literally that. How can we continue to double down? How can mm -hmm. we continue? And from the earliest days, right? Uh, again, and where I keep saying future trends and predicting and putting him there, he was he lived on Ustream, mm -hmm. right? And this is a decade ago. Mm -hmm. Now you talk about Twitch, right? Mm -hmm. And we just did a Twitch deal a decade later. We were live streaming to, with, to his fans 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. He'd sit on Twitter, go on Ustream, and engage with these kids. It'd be 35 kids there, right? Mm -hmm. But I like that's what people don't understand, right? Just, just real quickly, uh, when we talk about streaming or building an audience, he's not turning on one of these platforms like, oh, there's 10,000 people nope. here, right? You're talking about 35 fucking people on the other end of it, and it's day in, day out, day in, every day, day out. Every day. He knew the early fans by their names. They still come to shows now. And I used to say to him at the time, I'm like, that kid is going to buy music, buy merch, buy tickets a decade from now. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it play out, mm -hmm. right? So he lived on Ustream. Taught, he would engage with 35 kids, right? So identifying, you know, those trends and doing it, but also then saying, okay, as he started to get bigger where that wasn't really possible anymore, it was too big. How can we continue to double down then use social media as kind of a microphone, so, megaphone? So his sophomore album, it was kind of him and I brainstorming how we could do that. And I kind of came up with the idea. I was like, what if we just kind of bust you? He lived in LA at the time, needed to be in New York for press and media when his album came out two weeks later. I was like, what if we did a 14 day bus tour where across the country, we literally stopped at fans' houses, mm -hmm. right? We ran a contest, stopped at fans' houses, knocked on their door, and you went inside and played them the album one-on-one, -on -one, right? You had that experience before it came out, right? And we captured that content and we put that content out. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we did. And I've never seen an artist do something like that. How long was the album? That album is probably an hour and 20 minutes. So literally, I'm going to go into somebody's house that I've never met before, but is a fan of me. I'm going to play the album. I'm going to interact with them. I'm going to spend an hour and a half, two hours, whatever, with them. And then I'm going to go to the next one. Now it's one person. One person. He and showed up. And again. And again. Knocked on and the again, door. And again. And again. We did it for two weeks straight. And it ended up in New York when the album came out. But it was such a cool moment. Because then we document it. And Logic would kind of post on social media what that interaction was. Hey, this is Jacob. Mm -hmm. from San Antonio, Texas, right? Jacob's 17 years old, he's this. And we tell a little bit story, they had an interaction, mm -hmm. but that fan got a moment they're gonna remember for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Logic sat there, not only played the album one-on-one, -on -one, gave him a little bit behind the scenes, hey, this is my inspiration for this song. That's what I was going through in my life when I made this song. And then kind of learning from that experience and taking for me and doing it again, but trying to perfect it even better with other clients. Mm -hmm. So like my second client, John Bellion, who I'm still working with to this day, we did the same exact thing a year later, right? Really? But stepped it up a notch. So he was playing live in the living room. We did an entire acoustic show for that person and their family in their living room. So it's like really meaning it when we say doubling down and over delivering to your audience. Yeah. And so when you start to think about this, uh, let, let's go back to logic for a second. I think everyone thinks of him initially as uh, a, a musician, right? Mm -hmm. As a uh, as a rapper, sure. whatever you want to say, but a performer. There's a lot of different facets to his life. There's that aspect. There's chess, mm -hmm. right? You start getting into the various personalities or kind of uh, pseudonyms, if you sure. will, right? Or, or kind of brands around him. Talk about just, uh, it's one thing to say, okay, you as a performer, I'm going to take you, I'm going to take you city to city. We're going to use the internet. We're going to build an audience. And if we have audience and fans, then we can figure out how to build a business around you as a performer. But you guys built an entire franchise, sure. right? And there's multiple ways to look at this. So like, where did that come from? Is that you saying, hey, we should go build a whole franchise? Is that just naturally kind of, okay, here's the next kind of step we take? Like, how does that come together? It was a learning experience as we kind of went. I think his early days of Logic, if you look at a lot of that first album, it was 2014, it was called Under Pressure. Even if you look, he was on the Double XL Freshman cover, which is you know, for an up and coming artist, it's the biggest thing you can get. It's it's basically predicting who, it's a who's next list, right? Mm -hmm. And you go and you do that big photo shoot for the cover. And if you look at what Logic's wearing, he's got, you know, a big jacket on, three, four gold chains. And it so wasn't who he is, right? Mm -hmm. Now we all know who Logic is. He's not that guy. We had a stylist for the shoot. We thought we needed to fit in the box of got hip hop. It. When Logic really lived on the outside of it, and once I realized that, 
I just started nudging him to be more and more of himself. The more human and himself he became, those personas started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we were able to kind of build these different brands around him because they were all part of him, mm -hmm. right? I think because he's a versatile artist, Bobby Tarantino, one of his personas, is like a little bit more fun, mm -hmm. right? I think Young Sinatra's boom bap hip hop, which originally is what drew me when I reached out to him. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also built merchandise brands around those personas and mm -hmm. were able to really expand. You brought up him playing chess. He had an era where he kind of perfected a Rubik's Cube. So he's going to do press and he's going to freestyle at these radio stations. I'm like, yo, just bring your Rubik's Cube. He started freestyling, doing it with his eyes closed. You know, his sophomore album, we did a panel at Comic-Con because like we started realizing some of his audience, it was kind of this nerd culture thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's lean into it, right? Mm -hmm. And looking back now, I think he kind of grew what hip hop was and what's acceptable in hip hop because mm -hmm. he didn't fit in that box. And if we had continuously tried to put him in that box, I think we would have failed miserably. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing was identifying that, learning from and saying, listen, let's triple down on who you are. How important is it to have the right person to do this with? Oh, it's so important, right? Because if you're not authentic and genuine, that's the biggest thing about Logic. He's just such a genuine guy. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be impossible because I think audience can see through that and mm -hmm. a fan base can see right through that. And I think they realize how genuine he was. Like this dude's doing Rubik's Cube because he loves it. This mm -hmm. dude is playing chess on Twitch now versus grandmasters because he loves it, you know? Mm -hmm. Now what you've done is you've basically built a talent management business, right? And uh, not once, you've done it many times with multiple artists, uh, but you started to do more investing. Sure. And I think when we first started talking, uh, at first it's like, okay, anyone who's successful at anything, like they want to have some investments. But the more that we've gotten to know each other, it feels like there's a really, really strong connection between talent management and startup investing. Because ultimately what you're doing is you're picking talent, sure. right? So talk a little bit just about like, how do you see those similarities? And like, is it literally the same way I pick logic out of a crowd, I can go pick the next startup founder that I think will have like a high probability of success? Or is that not really a great comparison? I wouldn't say picking a startup founder out of a crowd, but I think when you work with successful people, right? Like identifying logic and then doing it several times over and building, you know, a talent management company, you're like, okay, well, maybe I have a unique ability to identify talent, right? And then the second aspect of that, it's not only identifying talent, it's having an all, a unique worldview and knowing where the world is going to be and putting that artist there. Cause that's how we did everything. When you're bootstrapping mm -hmm. a company and you don't have hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in marketing costs, you just had to outsmart everyone and mm -hmm. put that artist where the world was gonna be, right? They'd be a first mover. Anytime a social media application came out, Logic was the first mover. Mm -hmm. He built a massive audience in the early days of Snapchat, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's using those two things. And as I grew over the course of the decade, I started realizing about three years ago that there's a lot of comparisons as it was organic, right? People would start introducing me to, you know, startups and founders and having the ability to say, okay, this person kind of has those, you know, qualities of what some of the artists that I invested in have. And then also, you know, as they're pitching me, listening to that and going, well, well, I know where the world is moving. I'm gonna bet on this. So it's kind of both those things. When it was kind of one of those moments where you're like, wow, there is really a lot of similarities between these two things. Once you find talent from a music standpoint, you do a lot of work in terms of what I'll call uh, kind of behind the scenes, um, really kind of helping them plot what are the intentional steps we're gonna take to get the ultimate goal, right? How does that play into then helping a startup founder or a company? Because right? it's very similar. A lot of investors, you have to help from a strategic standpoint. You're not there every day doing sure. stuff. But just like, how do you see the experience you have from music porting over? Yeah, I think I can help in, in where I think I understand the world the best. And that's kind of living in the entertainment and tech space for a decade. Um, building an audience, right? And I think any startup at a certain point needs to needs to get users. Mm -hmm. um, so it's over a decade of experience. And also I grew a business, right? Mm -hmm. I bootstrapped a business. And um, I think it's it's trying to add value in, in, in the world that I know, right? If something as I really can't add value in, I tend not to invest in it because mm -hmm. um, I don't see the point. I was like, I can't add you value. So. One of the areas of investing I think that people are super interested in today is this like creator economy, right? Um, we've talked previously about this idea of like, what's the difference between Logic the musician versus somebody who's a Twitch streamer versus somebody who's on TikTok versus somebody who's got an email newsletter versus a podcast versus somebody who gets a Netflix deal. Sure. They're all creating content. They're all trying to build fans, right? They're trying to have engagement, like all this stuff. So 
how do you look at the evolution over the last 10 years or so since you started to today of like what a creator is and, and kind of all the tools and analytics and stuff that are available to them? Yeah, I think most creators have always been there, but I don't think there was the distribution channels for them to kind of build an audience, right? And now what you're seeing is kind of this middle class emerge, right? And one of the themes I've been obsessed with the past couple of years is niche, right? Mm -hmm. Because story about, it was actually the day, I was always, I always knew Logic was a niche artist, right? Mm -hmm. And we didn't care about having the big pop culture moment. Mm -hmm. Ultimately that came, right? But it was like, let's just triple down on this audience that you have. He, he sold out the garden, right? And that was a big deal, I'm a New York guy. And like any other morning I'm on my run, I lived in the East Village at the time, I was in the East River Run, and I was running through the city and I had a thought, I was like, 99.9% of people right now have no idea Logic's playing MSG tonight, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, so that is the pinnacle as an entertainer selling out that arena, right? But I realized like the 8 million people in the city there's only gonna be 15,000 people in that room tonight. Mm -hmm. That's a niche business, right? Mm -hmm. So it started getting me to think more and more about niche. And then as kind of the internet evolved, tech evolved, like what you're seeing now is the middle-class economy just boom. And I use an example as an analogy, like Betty Sue in North Dakota, who bakes cookies on YouTube with her daughter, and right? And other moms with their daughters watch them and they use the same recipes. She can actually have a real business like doing that now and can live off YouTube ad revenue and maybe sell recipes. So I think if you have a, but again, the one thing that I try to remind people, you have to be talented. Mm -hmm. You can't just turn on a microphone and start a podcast. You have, you have to be, there's gotta be some talent there. You have to be adding value to an audience or else I don't, I don't think it'll, it'll work. Yeah. And so when you're doing that, that is, uh, again, like more from the creator seat, what about the tools, right? How has that stuff changed? Whereas you know, now, if you had the tools you have today, back in 2011, my guess is you guys would be even bigger, right? You sure. were already super successful, but sure. like it would be even bigger because it's just leverage sure. on the ideas that you have. Sure. There's so many more ways now because of tools that you can monetize and also build an audience. You just said like, whether it's an email, paid email newsletter, whether it's mm -hmm. a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. When we started out a decade ago, there was very few ways you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and now what I say to artists, like, unfortunately, you can't just make music anymore. I think music is just, it's an extension of your brand. You have to build your brand, right? Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's easier for some people based off their personalities than it is with others. Like, I think logic, that became natural, right? Mm -hmm. Pandemic happens and we're sitting there, go, how do we generate revenue, right? We're going to mm -hmm. lose X number of dollars in touring income. I knew the Twitch executives, we started having conversations organically, it turned into a Twitch deal, right? Mm -hmm. And that was groundbreaking for Twitch at the time. They'd never done a deal with an artist before. Um, and because of who Logic is, he can interact with his audience that way. He's playing chess on there. He'll he'll go and make beats for an hour and kids love that, right? It's, I've been going to the studio with him for 10 years. I don't find it that interesting anymore. Mm -hmm. Kids love that, right? That's perspective they don't normally get. So I think now there's just so many ways that if you're not, but again, my, again, a piece of advice, do what's natural to you, mm -hmm. right? If you're not a good writer, don't do a paid newsletter, mm -hmm. right? If you're, if you're better speaking and on camera, do YouTube vlogs. And we were doing all this stuff 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. From that first tour I mentioned a decade ago, we have vlogs all on YouTube. You go back and watch that entire tour, right? Like it's stuff, we were doing it 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So. And when you were doing it, were you measuring any of this, like in terms of like analytics or success or like, like why keep doing it, right? It's one thing to say, oh, this should be a good idea. What gives you the confidence to keep doing it? Because it was growing. So we saw it and it was like small W, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. This vlog this week did better than last week's vlog. That's positive. Let's do it again. Mm -hmm. And it was, like I said, the small wins adding up on a daily basis. Again, when you're first starting out to this day, it's no different. You have to see growth and just let that keep you going, give the motivation to continue doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. If you go back, what are the tools today that you're like, this was a game changer for artists, whether they're musicians or, or otherwise? Is it just streaming, for example? Like, hey, whether it's Twitch, uh, streaming video, streaming music on the Spotify's Apple Musics, is it something else? Like, like, what are those inflection points now kind of looking back that you're like, man, maybe people didn't understand it at the time, but this really changed the game? Social media. Social it's, media it's, is It's one. why you can take a kid from Maryland and me building out of my parents' basement. We're both 20 years old. And, you know, 
completely get it off the ground to where every single record company is calling us, asking us how we were doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Starting and you know, selling on a national tour. He he sold out three and a half national tours in Europe twice before he even put out his debut album. Mm -hmm. Everybody was head they're like, how did you do this? Mm -hmm. It was social media. That was completely game changing for for us. Is there a corollary in like the startup world uh, to mixtapes? Like mixtapes almost feel like a half R and D, half uh, customer acquisition, and then like half uh, practice to some degree, right? Like really well said. Yeah, I agree. I think. I guess that was three halves, so you can't really get a whole. But go ahead. No, but it was <laughs> it was a way for us to see what his audience liked, mm -hmm. right? Those mixtapes were we had twenty two, twenty three songs. They were big mixtapes, and we got to see what performed better, mm -hmm. um, what his audience engaged with and i think as he developed he was always like it's a talent right that's him in the gym working on his free throw mm -hmm. but he's doing it publicly i think learning in public is is something that i advise a lot of people to do um that's what that to me that's what mixtapes is learning in public right you're trying things you're figuring it out he was perfecting you know his skill um and by the time he was ready for his debut album i think it was because of all of the the mixtapes and music we had put out yeah when you start to think through uh investing are there certain things you're looking for or is it just i'm looking for the founder more more often than not for me it's the founder mm -hmm. they have that again it's intuition based right and this is learning a lot how i've grown so as an investor, especially over the course of the past three years, right, I had took a bunch of early bets in my life, right? You know, I bet my life on Logic and, and John, my first two clients, and had just a, a massive level of conviction in their talent. Mm -hmm. And then as I kind of had some success, I started taking smaller bets. And this is in the investing space, mm -hmm. not necessarily all in the startup world, betting in the public markets. And I was like, okay, I'm, I was right a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But my upside wasn't tremendous because I was taking these small bets, right? Mm -hmm. And it was something, and we talked about this right before that Chamath, Polyhapatia had talked about slugging percentage versus batting average, right? I had a really high batting average, but a lower slugging percentage because mm -hmm. I wasn't taking these high conviction bets. Mm -hmm. Playing so, not to lose. Correct. I was playing not to lose instead of to win. Mm -hmm. And I, I was funny because I was thinking on it recently. I was like, why did I do that, right? In my early days, I took these massive outsized bets, right? Mm -hmm. And had these massive outsized wins. But once I had some level of success, I was more timid and wasn't willing to do that. It was, it, I don't know, it's something about kind of human nature. I think I fell into that. So I have to remind myself, the next time you feel that level of conviction, mm -hmm. bet on that founder, bet on that startup, bet mm -hmm. on that, right? So that's something I constantly remind myself. Yeah, and when that happens in startups, there's one check size, right, that you can write. Sure. But two is it feels like you can be really, really helpful outside of just the check because you've got a very different kind of Rolodex, right? You've got very different experiences than kind of the cookie cutter venture capitalists who, hey, they, you know, they're great people. They work hard. They're sure. doing what they're good at. But a lot of them have the same skill sets. A lot of them have the same networks. And so you bring something differentiated to the table. And that's really where you can leverage that on these big bets. Sure. So I, I, again, that's it's super important to me to add value. I speak the founders that I invest in. I try to speak to them every two weeks, if not more. And again, it's the, how much the founder wants to speak to you and how much they're looking for advice. Um, but yeah, I, it's back to your previous question, If it's the founder. That mm -hmm. same intuition I got in some of my early clients, mm -hmm. if I have that same feeling, I'll take a big bet. Yeah, when you start thinking about uh, how the startup ecosystem is changing, uh, Crypto is one piece of that. There's also just traditional technology, early stage private markets. And then there's like everything else. And I'll put everything else in like this legacy bucket. So there's real estate, there's public markets, all this stuff. It feels like you're much, much more focused on like early stage venture and crypto more Correct. so than the other stuff. Correct. All right. So walk me through like, where does that come from? And like, how do you think about, okay, I've got all these opportunities that I could invest in across all these different asset classes. Like why those two? For me, and this is going to sound like a, you know, funny answer, but the, the the asymmetrical upside, right? I could take my money and I could stick it in S&P 500 index fund and make 6% a year for the rest of my life, right? I enjoy kind of betting on my gut and betting on my worldview mm -hmm. because there's no better feeling in the world to me than that. And the, the closest example I have it is how you and I started building a relationship mm -hmm. was kind of the Bitcoin bet, mm -hmm. right? And it was kind of the beginning of COVID, I'm watching well, public equities are now an all-time high, bond yields are at an all-time low. Where can I put capital to work, right? Mm -hmm. And me understanding, again, my world, I'm like, okay, there's going to be an outcome from the Fed 
printing this much money. Mm -hmm. What I think that's going to be is that's going to create inflation. Where can I put my money as an inflation hedge? Mm -hmm. And then I started going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, mm -hmm. right? And I went to school consuming all of your content and just literally from re reading the white paper to just going deep. Mm -hmm. um, and then the final step for me was reaching into my network, getting introduced to people like yourself, mm -hmm. getting introduced to Fred Ursum, mm -hmm. co-founder of Coinbase, getting you guys on the phone, meeting with you for a beer in New York mm -hmm. and going, hey, here's my thesis. Do you think I'm right? Mm -hmm. And once I heard yes enough, I was like, okay, I'm going to push all my chips in, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that level of conviction. Um, and then kind of seeing the run that Bitcoin has had since, it's a great feeling, right? I, I use kind of investing in business. I'm a competitor, right? Back mm -hmm. to my original from the beginning, a athlete, a soccer player. So it's a way for me to kind of get that competition out a little bit. Is competition what drives you? Like, like what would you rather? Would you rather win and say like, yes, I bet on this and I was right? Or would you rather actually make money on something you were wrong on? That's a tough question. Right? I, I, like because, but I think about this all the time. Like, what is the right answer there? At, at this stage, I'm just competing with myself, right? Um, I would, did you ask me if I want, if I, would I feel better betting on something being right and winning? Betting on something being wrong and winning? What mm -hmm. would I feel better? Definitely being right, mm -hmm. I think. Um, have I won off something that I was unsure of, but took that bet? Sure. Um, but yeah, I think I'm competing with myself. When I was mm -hmm. younger, I would like, you know, I think it's part of what drove me. I'd want to compete with other managers and mm -hmm. executives. Um, Is there a lot of shit talking that goes on in the... No, but I think behind the scenes, you kind of like, no, nah, we're going to, you know, let, wait till next We see that like, guy, exactly. what he's doing. We see that woman, what she's doing. Like, okay, we want to be the young, that was the younger entrepreneur in me. And I realized, you know, a little, a little bit later that it's not a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. And when I, once I kind of that, that switch had flipped for me, I started winning much more. What are one or two ideas that you have now that you're like, if I'm a founder, if I'm an artist, I want to build an audience. Given all the tools, given the world we live in today, whatever, what are one or two things where you're like, man, I would go spend a lot more time on A or B, but most people don't think about those things, right? Like, like, like it's almost like a, a counterintuitive thing to go spend your time on, but that you think that there's a lot of payoff there. I think the best way I could answer that is understanding where your audience is. It may not be the biggest platform in the world. Like so many artists want to run to TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. That is the thing right now. And it's been like that for a couple of years, but it's like, well, maybe your music isn't right for TikTok. Maybe you yourself as a brand, as an artist isn't right for TikTok. Why not spend a lot of your time on Discord? I think that's where your audience is. You should spend time on Discord, right? What does that mean? Like spend time on Discord? Is that like start your own uh, kind of Discord uh, yeah, group or based whatever? Yeah, right? based around your interest maybe, mm -hmm. right? And then be be the, the subject matter expert in that and then also then pull people into your music, right? Again, music is just now an extension of an artist brand, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe Logic is the chess guy and his music is just, uh, you know, extension of his brand, right? Obviously he was a bigger musician first, but I'm, you can reverse engineer that and say, mm -hmm. well, no, I can be the this guy in this space and then kind of just, and again, the bad example of it is a lot of these TikTok kids putting out music. Mm -hmm. It's not what I mean. Um, like it has to be- Is it not good? No comment. It uh, has to be authentic and genuine to, to who you are, but there's just so many ways that like, and what I'm realizing now, right, is people want to go deep. Not mm -hmm. the same way they used to go deep back when I was starting out a decade ago because the internet wasn't as noisy, right? Mm -hmm. So what I challenge myself and I challenge my team, where can we put our talent to where people are gonna wanna go deeper? Mm -hmm. TikTok, you just scroll. Mm -hmm. Next, 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 mm -hmm. next, next. It's so hard for you to stop, click on that artist profile, go a little deeper, then go to their Spotify page. Now, 10 years ago, that's all you really did. And I re that's why I say word of mouth, right? It's something that I focus on a lot because people don't talk about it because you can't. it's a metric you can't measure. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, where can I put talent to where word of mouth is going to kick in, mm -hmm. right? Where it's not as noisy, it's not as cluttered. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you have to start looking, you know, in different places. Yeah. So even micro communities, right? That's something that we focus on, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, right? Marketing to those micro communities because we think this artist specific audience lives in that community. So mm -hmm. it's a, just reverse engineering stuff. How do you know it's working outside the analytics? Are there little things that you look for in the way that um, a customer talks about a product or talks about a musician, uh, something they do, like like what are the little things that you look for, right? So if, let's say you're evaluating a startup uh, to invest in and the product's already out in the market, it's got a consumer facing element to it. 
are there things you're looking for in that customer base where you're like, oh, when I see this, like that tells me there's really that like product market fit and people really need this or really, really want it? It's a great, great question. And I didn't realize this until the past 18 months, right? Okay. During COVID was selling tickets. That oh, was always a metric for us to know what we were doing was really working. Mm-hmm. And when we lost that, I was like, fuck. We I relied on that a lot. I didn't realize that. It's such a commitment to buy a ticket to see an artist live that people don't realize, right? Mm-hmm. You're maybe getting a babysitter that night. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're taking off work the next day. Maybe you're getting a ride there. Maybe mm-hmm. you got to work out your public transportation, right? How like did, did you buy tickets three months in advance? Or did you buy it right before to see if the tickets drop? It's the ultimate commitment that a fan can make is seeing a live show. Mm-hmm. So that is the number one thing that kept us going that we knew was working. Every time we put out an album, you put up a tour. Mm-hmm. Tour crushes, we did a good job, move on, right? Losing that for 18 months was really what made me realize, wow, I didn't realize how much that metric of ticket sales was important to us. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that is uh, very similar for a startup, like you're actually selling the product, like are there sales, right? Just like are Correct. people willing to take their, although you can say the depreciating fiat currency, right? Correct. You can actually trade that for this good or service. You're willing to give up your hard earned money uh, for this and that's the ultimate sign that like, yes, I want this. Correct, and it, again, it's also the similarity between like you wanna look at Logic's career in a startup, giving away f- free music was us, it was pre-revenue, right? We weren't mm. making any money. So everyone wants us to talk about that in the venture world. Oh, they're pre-revenue. So were we, right? Mm-hmm. I was living in my parents' basement, giving out album after album for free because I knew we were building this audience that we'd monetize later. Mm-hmm. So that's where like there's so many similarities between the space of venture investing and, and talent management. Were you guys uh, burning CDs? We were not at the point. That's a yeah. little bit later. It's like okay. when Apple, you, you bought a MacBook, yeah, they didn't yeah, have yeah. CD drives in them. So yeah. Got it. So that. you guys would basically be giving them out all digitally. Uh, uh, like what, you brought up Dad Piff. I was going to say, what, it remind me what Dad Piff was. I remember I used to go in there for like, I don't know, like Lil Wayne would drop a mixtape. A mixtape marketplace. Okay. That's what it was. And Got that's it. what we did. Um, you pay 50 bucks, uploaded a mixtape, and they had a chart. You did well, you chart, and that was it. <laughs> Obviously, we had to market the music, and it was all yeah, those yeah. things where the audience was and putting the music But there. the artist paid, and then it was free for everybody else. Fifty bucks. I mean, fifty bucks is nothing, yeah. right? But with music, it's just a massive market opportunity, and people are willing to pay. And you have to believe in what you're building because you're giving away all your product for free. Yeah. You had to believe in it and say, "Well, no, this is going to pay off." Right? Yeah. We're monetizing the time is right, and that's what his first album was. That's what the first tour was, and it compounded from there. How do you think about Bitcoin, the community versus like a Logic fan base? Right? Like to me, Bitcoin is probably one of, if not the most rabid, engaged, it's large nuts. audiences on the internet. Right? Um, Logic's audience is pretty similar, right? You've done this for multiple artists mm-hmm. now, right? Uh, what is that a sign of anything? Is that like, hey, look, like people can look at all the prices and the fundamentals and everything, but like the community is like a, a much bigger sign than people realize? Or, or how do you think about that? Yeah. You know, people want to, this may be a weird comparison. People want to talk about Bitcoin failing, Bitcoin going to zero, mm-hmm. right? I think you and I know that's never gonna happen just based off of the rabid people who who are believers in it. It won't go to zero because I'll buy them all at a dollar. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then you have the same thing of like, so much of like being a fan of someone, you get into barbershop debates and that's so much of what hip hop was. And I think Logic's audience will defend him to the death, right? It's mm-hmm. a lot of that same belief. And what that tells me is, He's going to have a career for life. Mm-hmm. We're 10 years in now, right? Mm-hmm. That audience is going to be there. They're passionate. They're engaged. And and that's what that tells me. It gives you a little bit of confidence and security, I think. Yeah. And Bitcoin has that, you know, times a thousand, just given the larger audience 100%. and stuff. Yeah. And, and also, I think that there's this weird sense of uh, they, they feel like uh, in music, they're protecting the artist. Sure. Here, they're protecting the network, sure. right? And the network actually can't. Uh, quote unquote, fuck up, right? Like Logic could go out and get a DUI, right? Or an artist could go out and do something stupid. Sure. And next thing you know, everyone's like, ah, you know, I don't know. Like Conor McGregor is probably the best example, actually. Mm-hmm. Loved by so many. Does a couple of dumb things. Now all of a sudden people are like, ah, I don't know how I feel. Does a couple more dumb things. People may just be like, all right, fine. Like we're done with that guy, right? Correct. A network that is just a computer system that has no ability to do anything other than what it's created to do you don't have to worry about that, right? Like, like there's this um, almost clinical nature to it. Correct. And so there's no humanity there, uh, which I've never really thought about, but like that's an interesting way to look at like why people will be so loyal for so long. Correct. Like you and I were joking off camera, but like Elon could tweet whatever he wants to tweet. I shrug my shoulders at it. 
It's fine. He's testing it, by the way. He wants to te- he wants to tweet whatever he wants to tweet, and he's going to do it. And I keep shrugging my shoulders. It's fine. I mean, he hit us with a was it Tesla has uh, diamond, diamond hands. Yeah. I mean, like the guy, uh, he understands the internet pretty yep. damn well, right? <laughs> he's genius, right? But um, is it genius or is it evil genius? Or are those two things the same? I think he's having fun. I think the guy's a genius, and what he's done for society and is doing um, is incredible. But I don't know if I had that megaphone, if I would manipulate and move markets. So <laughs> That's fair. Uh, in crypto, all Bitcoin, or do you look at other stuff, DeFi, all that? How do I you think about it? I only invested in Bitcoin. Just Bitcoin. And uh, is it a thing where Bitcoin is... Um, the core of a portfolio because you're looking at more from like a wealth preservation standpoint or like how do you think about the actual portfolio construction? It was a whole it was a whole bunch of things that led up to my conviction in Bitcoin. Um, COVID played a massive role in mm-hmm. what the Fed did and what mm-hmm. happened. And then I realized like everything is just going to live on the internet eventually. Everything is going to be digitized. Mm-hmm. So if you don't think a store of value is going to be digitized, you're out of your mind, right? Like I'm not buying gold. I don't want to mm-hmm. buy gold. But have I, you ever bought gold? I've never bought I've gold. I've never bought gold. Yeah, neither have I. But I want to be able to put some money where it's going to be an inflation hedge and, and be protected. And my belief is that that's Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, now that you are into Bitcoin, uh, other people in your life have sort of come into Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, friends, family, uh, logic, mm-hmm. et cetera. What are those conversations like? Right? Like, come, because you, you have a very unique position in that uh you aren't necessarily uh full-time like my day job is in finance uh or in venture capital or whatever but i think when people talk to you like oh this guy really knows what he's talking about right he did the work he, he's, he's gone to school as you say um and then you're talking to people who their full-time job is not investing either right. in most cases so is that a thing where like oh they just trust you and they're like okay hey you know what are you doing i'll, I'll kind of mirror that or do you find yourself like really doing more education on kind of a granular level uh with kind of people outside of the finance world yeah i would never tell anyone to blindly trust me so i try to do some education but again it's surface level because some of it's really complex especially if you don't really understand the financial world or how markets work mm-hmm. um so yeah logic was knowledgeable on it we ha- we have another buddy of ours um that's been around for years who was early in the space by no means am i trying to say i'm super early i think timing worked out um so yeah i, I try to educate and a lot of it yeah it is especially with clients is trust me mm-hmm. that's worked for me and you know, I don't say that often. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. All right. Last thing I got to ask you, and then we'll get into rapid fire, the Charizard card or whatever. What 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 is going on here? Were you involved in this at all? He called me and told it's me Char- he was doing it. Literally, Charizard, Charizard card. He spent right, a quarter okay. million dollars on. Okay. And so just a regular Pokemon card. He called me. I remember it was, I don't know, it was 5.30 p.m. or whatever. He's like, yo, I'm just letting you know. He's like, you're not going to talk me out of it. <laughs> I'm buying a Charizard card for $250,000. I was like, all right. I was like, rocket. Because again, when when he starts out the phone call, I'm like, yeah, was, it, the decision's already been made. And I'm I was just... like, call, I was like, call Josh. Josh's account. I was like, call Josh. <laughs> and listen, what's funny is he's gonna win off that. It worked, right? He, he know he knows that world, and I his intuition is phenomenal. He knows that space. He knows that yeah. world. Um, he and he's invested much more. He hasn't been as public about in in, in the collectible trading cards. So you, you've you been able to help a bunch of other people understand Bitcoin and stuff like that. Uh, did he convince you to go buy some Pokemon cards? He has not yet. <laughs> he has not yet. <laughs> has he tried? I'm, I'm a little bit more stubborn. Than, Are, than has he, he tried? He has tried, yeah. Oh, and you're just not into it? Not having it. Well, what is I'm very bullish it? on the space. I've made, I, so I've made a bunch of angel investments in the space. I did, okay. I did whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think I introduced mm-hmm. you yep, to, yep, yep. to Grant. I did alt mm-hmm. um, alongside Alexis Ohanian, who's kind enough to let me mm-hmm. in with him. Um, those those are two perfect examples. So I yeah, am more super, infrastructure than hey, let me go try to figure out what cards. Super to buy. bullish on the space instead of me investing in actual cards myself. Yeah, I tend to think that that's a. I'm with you. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who are very big into it, and they're like, you know, not so much Pokemon, but more like the sports cards. Like you know, PSA nine and but like, dude, I had a little, I don't even know the difference, right? So like, how could I possibly outcompete you if you you know all and, this stuff? You're an expert, and I can't figure it out. For me to be willing to learn, I have to have some level of passion. So when mm-hmm. I went to school, I say I went to school on Bitcoin. I'm kind of a nerd with that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and it was super interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I don't have that with with collectibles. I don't really have that, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't have took the time to learn what cards to buy. Yeah, so makes sense. Uh, three questions 
to wrap up and you guys ask me one uh your most important book you've ever read never eat alone Ooh, by or, keith ferrazzi okay it completely changed my mind on why networking it's all about networking okay i had i was a young kid and i thought business was a zero-sum game that mm -hmm. book taught me otherwise it changed my life mm -hmm. what what is just the like high level premise of the book give and expect nothing in return got it okay and so never eat alone means like if you're going to eat make sure everyone else eats around you correct got it uh no one's ever suggested that before that's a great one um second question eight sleep uh what is your sleep schedule and for those that don't know eight sleep is basically a thermoregulated bed um i sleep on it it's fucking freezing cold uh but i sleep like a baby mm -hmm. do you sleep a lot not a lot has that changed through the pandemic <clears throat> as i've gotten older i prioritize my sleep speaking of i just bought nate's sleep um, oh I'm two, nice I'm two weeks in let's it's, it's go. great i'm two weeks in it's great um i prioritize it now okay. did not for for the early days and i don't advise it i didn't sleep a lot mm -hmm. um i don't sleep a lot now i'm get, trying to get better all right so wait two weeks in this is this is my two questions uh did you or did you not get woken up by the uh vibration on the bed the I first did. the first morning I did. right it was great I leave it on. Oh, you oh you use it. I use oh, it. Oh, I had to shut it off. It scares the shit out of me. No, I leave it. Like I wake up and I'm like, no, whatever. Great. All right. So you it's, like that. it's it's the thermal regulation, the cooling for me. Yeah. I'm yeah. a hot sleeper. Game changer. Yep. Absolute game changer. Second thing is, uh, do you are you like fanatical about hey you know a certain time every night I go to sleep or are you more so I go to sleep when I'm tired but I just want to make sure I get you know eight hours or whatever. Now I'm trying to put a time to it. Okay. Um, because I can get distracted. Um, so midnight. I try to get into bed at midnight. Mm -hmm. um, get up at seven thirty. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's not bad, no. right? And and uh, if your body just gets into it and used to it, then like you're golden. Yeah, and, and again, what got me more into trying to pay more attention to it was the the not traveling as often. Mm. Traveling throws me out of whack, and I spent mm -hmm. a decade traveling. So yeah, I I hear you. Yeah. Uh, third question: Aliens, believer or non-believer? Big believer. Why? I think the universe is too big for us to be here by ourselves. That simple. Do you think that they're close enough where we'll ever come in contact or it's just like, oh yeah, they're probably out there, but we'll just never talk to them? I think eventually. Oh, you, oh, you do? Eventually. During our lifetime? No. Oh, all right. But just like during humanity's lifetime. 100%. Yeah. Uh, big question then is just like, do we find them or do they find us? They find us. You think so? Yeah. Is it like Independence Day where they're like flying down and- <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, I haven't thought that deep into it. What do you think? In our lifetime, we don't come in contact. Okay. Um, but I don't know. There's a lot of UFO garbage that's flying around, and uh, maybe some of it's real. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I also uh, have to remind people that uh, UFOs and aliens are not the same thing. Good point. Right? Like, like we just immediately, when you hear UFO, you're like, oh, aliens. I just watched this clip from 60 Minutes about two uh, Air Force pilots who swear they saw a UFO. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but like, see, here's my... So like I've seen a couple of these. I haven't seen this specific one, so I want to be careful that I'm not talking about them specifically. But like a UFO is an unidentified flying object. Mm -hmm. So they're like, I swear that I saw a UFO. And you're like, okay, did you see a alien spaceship? Or did you just see something in the sky that you don't know what it was? They were literally sent out to go find out what it was because the, their radar was picking it up. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like, hey, we see something out there. We don't know what it is. You guys fly out there. They flew out and now they're like, yo. Yeah. It was it not was, It was really normal. interesting. It was a five minute segment. It was really interesting. All right. I'm going to have to watch it now. I'll send it to you. Um, you could ask me one question to finish up. Where does Bitcoin end the year? End <laughs> <laughs> uh, the year is hard. How about I pick what's the highest it hits this year? Okay. I should just say 100k because then I'll uh, I'll stick with my thing. Um, so I definitely think it hits 100. If you told me sometime next year that Bitcoin hit 250 thousand dollars this year, uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Okay. I don't know if I've got enough confidence where I'm like it's gonna do this right with 100k since 2019. Mm. I've been like this sure. is ha like this is going to to happen, um, and that's just based off havings and, and kind of all that. Anything over that, I think it's literally just like how frothy is it at the time, and how quickly do we go from let's call it like 100k to whatever, right? And so is that number 125 thousand dollars or 500 thousand sure. dollars? Like such like a big range in there, and so I don't know, just pick the middle. Like, I got somewhere around like 250 okay so we'll see where uh, where can we send people to find you on the internet twitter 
Chris Zeru. Um, yeah, that's where I am. Is that the easiest place? Easiest place. Founders too? That's it. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, thank you for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, since I've gotten to know you, I think the uh, the two things that by far have like blown me away is like one, the level of effort and uh, work that goes into just like building a fan base that's actually engaged and like people are like, yo, I fucking love like whatever sure. this thing is. And then two, uh, there's not very many people who like start in that world and like, hey, I'm going to go learn this other world, right? There's a lot of people who start out here, they have success in the music world or whatever. And then they're like, oh yeah, well, like I'm successful here. Like, of course, I just, you just tell me what to do. I think you started out and you said, look, I don't know that much, right? And over the last couple of years, you've like really built yourself up in terms of like, now you could go and you can sit down and talk to anybody and yeah. you're like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. So yeah. kudos to you. Appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate everyone listening and we will do this again in the future. Thank you.